1: I just want you to know I believe the battle for your mind is a real thing. And I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I will invite you to think more clearly and independently about the world around us. And I encourage you to come and find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers as we claim our heritage as free individuals. So thank you so much for joining us today. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and lifesavingfood.com. Let me take just a moment here just to share a couple quick insights on lifesavingfood.com. This is ReadyWise food storage. So there's freeze-dried, there's dehydrated food. Very, very simple to prepare. A lot of these are in individual, uh, you know, the individual servings or pouches are very easy. You just open it up, put in water. Could be hot, could be cold, but you've got a meal right there. 25-year shelf life easily stackable grab-and-go buckets. They try to make it as convenient as possible. They have some truly delicious foods to choose from, even gluten-free options, if that's an issue in your household, something to think about. But here's the real kicker. There are still plenty of supplies available. Prices are still reasonable. And the best part of all is lifesavingfood.com is offering listeners to this program A 20% discount on their purchase. One-fifth off the price if you use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. Okay, that's as strong arm as I'm going to get, but click on the link. See if there's something you need. If you're starting a food storage program, might be a good time to do that. 20% savings for my listeners with the coupon code HYDE at checkout. There you go. Isn't it interesting during the past year and a half how we have all been trained to to see the world in different ways? And I'm going to give you a couple of examples. We have all been trained now to classify people by their profession. Oh, essential. Hmm, non-essential. We've been trained how to stigmatize the sick. Oh, you got COVID. What did you do wrong? We've also been taught to demonize the non-compliant. I don't even have to give you an example of that. You can see that pretty much everywhere. Well, Jeffrey A. Tucker... From the Brownstone Institute says, the purges have begun and we are seeing a new kind of medical puritanism take shape. Listen to how he describes this. He says, how this began, the virus was here in the U.S. already for months from 2019 and life went on normally. But once the consciousness seeped in and politicians panicked, we moved quickly from travel restrictions to lockdowns to mask mandates to domestic capacity restrictions to vaccine mandates. And somewhere along the way, that's where we learned to classify people by profession, to stigmatize the sick, to demonize the noncompliant. Twenty months of intensified controls driven by political leaders from both parties with precious little dissent from media organs. Now, he says the pace has been furiously fast, but somehow just slow enough that people and media personalities adjust to the new. The cycle proceeds. Last week's shock becomes this week's normal. And then politicians scramble to create the next big intervention, covering previous failures failures rather with new nostrums, all while ignoring or censoring opposing views. Even hard-won scientific knowledge of a 100 years, for example, natural immunity, has been memory-holed. We reference Orwell often because there is a dystopian feel to it all. Describable best by references to stories that we only imagined through the help of books and movies. Things like The Hunger Games, The Matrix, V for Vendetta, Equilibrium. They all come to mind. Tucker says the policies have been bad enough, but the political polarization has been the real poison. In history, we've seen where this leads. New and random mandates from political leaders become loyalty tests. Compliant people are viewed as enlightened and obedient. The noncompliant are regarded as stupid and probably politically threatening. They are purgable. In this particular case, the mainstream media has argued for months that noncompliance correlates very closely with Trump support, which everyone knows is a civic sin of the highest order, even though he won the presidency five years ago. This realization was an invitation to the Biden administration to ramp up its mandates, finding any and every means to get the federal bureaucracies to penetrate the policy walls to the states that exist under the Constitution. They easily found the agency, Occupational Health and Safety Administration, twisted a few words and like magic, discovered a basis on which to override state-based limits on vaccine mandates. It's using medicine as a means of political punishment. One tip off of the political agenda here is that the data the data associations of the unvaxed by Trump uh, excuse me one of the one tip off of the political agenda here is that the data associations of the unvaxed by Trump support only work with 50 data points meaning state boundaries as Justin Hart has pointed out when you expand that by county level data with 3000 plus data points the correlation almost entirely disappears so I guess the thing is, if somebody calls you a Trumper, well, you're just a mindless Trump supporter because you're, you know, if you're not vaccinated. That kind of takes the wind out of their sails. Further, Jeffrey Tucker says, if you look at vaccination by race and income, you will find very low compliance among voters usually associated with Democratic support. So the war on the red states being waged by the federal government today is really about consolidating political support state by state. Regardless, though, He says the effects of the mandates are real and devastating for millions of people. People are losing their jobs because they are unwilling to go along. And all of this occurs in the midst of a chronic labor shortage. Bosses are being told by the government to dismiss people from their jobs just when companies are struggling for resources. And there are many reasons to refuse these mandates. The people with previous infections know that they have better immunities than they could get with a vaccine. They want that to count, even as the CDC refuses. This is particularly true of healthcare workers. Others prefer the risk of COVID to the risks, and they exist, of the vaccine side effects. Others simply resist the demand that they pump their bodies with a medicine developed with tax dollars for which the private companies bear no liability at all. It feels like an invasion of the body that should never be tolerated by a free people. And some people still imagine themselves to be free to choose. Their punishment for this is to lose their jobs. Now, the biggest impact will most immediately be felt in the state of New York. The governor, a new person named Kathleen Courtney Hochul, to replace the previous bad guy, she's all behind the Biden order. In particular, she is imposing this on health care workers. And as many as 70,000 people will lose their jobs as healthcare workers, even as hospitals are complaining about staffing shortages. Doesn't that at least make you scratch your head and just say, if this was really the incredible pandemic and the risk and, you know, the death and destruction that the media is trying to portray this to be, I would think that they would not be so keen on pushing people out the door who are trained and took years to get to that level of professional performance. Ah, well, Jeffrey Tucker talks about how the governor of New York has issued an executive order that contemplates forcing people who are enlisted in the National Guard to be deployed as scabs to replace the people who will be fired from their jobs. And he says it's hard to imagine how all of this will work. It comes very close to being a form of conscription in the health sector, replacing a voluntary system with a compulsory system. And It's not going to work out well for the patient. The most shocking aspect of this is that it targets the very workers who put themselves on the line in the early days of the panic. The world cheered in the spring of 2020. New Yorkers stood outside their windows and sang songs as the staffing shifts took place. They banged pans in appreciation. Here were all kinds of nurses, technicians, and doctors who put themselves in harm's way at a time when people were unsure of the risk profile of the disease itself. And they gained natural immunity through exposure. They know what that means because they're all trained in virology. They know that nothing beats acquired immunity via exposure, especially with a coronavirus with a changing profile. A vaccine cannot compare. That's precisely what 100% of the studies have shown since that time. And yet here we have governments imposing the shot on people who took the risk, gained the immunities, and now refuse to take another more potentially deadly risk from the vaccine that operates not like vaccines of old. I'm going to pause here for a moment because we're coming up on the break, but I, I just I can't express how much admiration I have for those people who have chosen to stand firm. What a scary time. Economically, we are not standing on firm ground. And, and losing your job in a good economy, it's still stressful. It's still difficult, but at least you know, well, there's there's the prospect of gaining employment. Right now, This is one of the worst economies we've faced in a long time, and it's getting worse. To be able to take a stand, knowing that your employment is about to end, takes a lot of courage. And it's not because they're Trump supporters. Somewhere beneath that defiance are the principles of a person who will not be bullied into compliance. That's actually a very
0: admirable trait. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: I would invite you, please, check out the show notes, which I publish along with every single episode of the program at thebrianhydeshow.com, daily show notes, Lots of great links to follow if you're serious about really owning your own worldview. Obviously, you're not going to take my word for anything because, you know, I know nothing. But you'll find some great information resources and you'll find great links and documentation that can take you further and further into whatever topic it is you want to follow up on. And if you find value in this, if this is in some way helping you either better understand or better cope with what's going on, I would ask you to please consider becoming a supporter of this program. You can become a member. Details are there at the website, the com. Just uh, click on the daily show notes and uh, let your conscience guide you. All right. Sharing an article here from uh, Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. The purges have begun. And when he talks about the purges, he's talking about, we are purging the noncompliant from among us by denying them employment. And interestingly enough, in this time of pandemic, it's the healthcare workers who are the first to be purged, the ones who won't get the uh, vaccination. He says a correspondent writes as follows. My wife is a triple board certified doctor in the Bronx. She worked at the hospital that had the highest COVID death rate in all of New York City. And she went down hard with COVID in April 2020 and missed two months of work. She recovered and went back. For 15 years, she served the poor, underprivileged patients on welfare in the Bronx. None of them had private insurance. She resigned on Friday, and I could not be more proud of her. She is not bowing to this tyranny. She tested her antibodies several times. They remain high. Please keep up this fight. Many, many nurses took the vax against their will because they could not afford to miss a paycheck. These mandates must fail," end quote. Jeffrey Tucker says, as if things could not get more preposterous and terrifying. Governor Hochul channeled God himself to say that this vaccine is not only a healing sacramental, but also morally obligatory for any true believer—a line to demarcate saints and sinners. I think her exact quote was, <clears throat> "The vaccine is from God to us, and we must say thank you, God." Now, there are people out there who aren't listening to God and what God wants. I need you to be my apostles. I need you to go out and say, we owe this to each other. That's the governor of New York saying those words. Holy cow. As Jeffrey Tucker points out, this is no longer about scientific confusion. This is starting to look like an old-fashioned political purge, whether justified by fake science or theology. And it's happening at many levels of society. In Massachusetts, dozens of state troopers are resigning. Healthcare workers in North Carolina are resigning. It's happening in Nebraska, California, and many other areas of the country. And hospitals and many other industries are worried. Even Navy SEALs are being told they won't be deployed if they don't get the jab. Now, it's not lost on the Biden administration. This tactic seems to have been hatched in the summer that this is haunting or this is harming their their political enemies, not exclusively, but predominantly. Apparently, no one really cares. In academia, the problems are heating up. Todd Zwicky of George Mason University School of Law sued over the mandate, proved he had natural immunity, and won an individual concession from the school, but their policy remains unchanged. Now, he's just one person, but there were thousands of others, most of whom are quiet about their plight. They don't have lawyers. They're just considering giving in, And they wonder what the point of resistance really is. Tucker says, among them are serious scientists who wake up daily wondering why we live in a world in which the denial of science has become required doctrine. And why they're being forced to choose between their principles and their income and profession. It's a grim time. One we never imagined we would face in the modern world, much less in the U.S., The party in power wants to remain in power forever. That's a story as old as time. The virus is the excuse of the day. The trouble is that they've been wrong in so many ways with so many victims that the whole scenario is unspeakable. Jeffrey Tucker says, we've been here before. The ultimate solution always comes down to a choice between two paths for the ruling regime. Either admit the wrongdoing or purge those who believe things they should not. And it would appear that the latter position is the prevailing one. The vaccine mandate has become the tool of choice. Submit or see your job melt away. This is where we are today. And remember, we're not talking about smallpox, nor are we talking about private companies exercising discretion. We are dealing here with a virus with a 99.8% survival rate and a vaccine that was oversold and so far has underdelivered. And he asks, where is the human conscience in all of this? Does it even exist among the ruling class machine? What happened to the old and settled concern for civil liberties, scientific integrity, minority rights, and bodily integrity? The political purge of institutions is part of a larger drive for purity in our society. In fact, some have called it a new puritanism. And the moniker fits. It's all about separating the clean from the unclean, defined by whatever the priority of the moment happens to be, biological, moral, political. What began as a push for a pathogen-free nation has moved to become the stigmatization of the sick and then a push for universal vaccination, even though none of it makes sense. The jab does not protect well against either infection or spread. The symbolic act of medicinal compliance easily becomes a physical sign of political compliance, the ID card. That then becomes the basis of reductio ad absurdum, the political purge and intensification of the mask mandate to become the needle mandate as a means of ferreting out dissidents. I think he's right about this, by the way. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a dissident, but uh, if you want, you want to make the dissidents show who they are? Well, here we are. Tucker says, thus does this mandate fulfill the illiberalism of our current moment in civic life and serve only to consolidate political power in the end. Pure is never pure enough, which is why Biden now says he demands 98% vaccination rates and even small children at near zero risk are being roped in. All of this will be as ineffective in achieving its aims as the rest of the virus control, control strategies. And of course, over time, it only fuels public anger and builds a resistance force and gives rise to new institutions determined to preserve and practice the precious right of human freedom dang So what do you think? I mean the movie The Purge <laughs> that was that was supposed to be science fiction, right? That's supposed to be dystopian fiction. Yeah, we're not out there murdering each other one night a week, but we're definitely being pitted against each other. How far would it take it to fan to whip those uh, flames up into, you know, some real political fervor? and go on kind of a you know great leap forward chinese uh, cultural revolution purge i think we're headed that direction and i don't say that lightly that's not just you know this is a slippery slope but you can feel the direction that we're going i think most people can feel it and and in their heart they they understand there's something terribly wrong terribly sick and off about this but they feel powerless to do something i don't know you know what the right answer is for you, but for me, there there are a couple things that I'm focusing on. And and right now, I have to. say, I, I feel like this is the right thing. My heart is at peace when I'm doing these things. Number one is I'm focusing on trying to be the best person that I can be. And I'll, I'll just I'll I'll just be more direct about this. I'm doing the best I can to get right with God. And if if you don't believe in God, that's fine. If you are still a good person, if you focus your efforts on being the best version of yourself that you can, as in someone who's steady, someone who knows right from wrong, someone who cannot be swayed by, you know, little trifles or distracted by things that don't matter, you're actually doing a great thing. The second thing is to focus on those areas where I do have control, where I do have influence. This means I spend a lot less time watching mainstream media and a lot more time with family. It means I am less interested in frivolous things. I love to have fun too, but if I'm going to have fun, sometimes that's, uh, you know, making sure that my preps are in order. Helping people around me, that's a big one too. But most of all, I will not give up on my commitment to freedom, and I'd encourage you, don't give up on yours either. You're not alone.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: A quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I have been so happy to have them as sponsors on this program. And I know that they are doing great work to help those of you in the state of Utah who are looking for a mortgage, either a traditional loan or a reverse mortgage or a VA loan. They are there to help you get that loan at the best interest rates possible and as quickly as possible. Because it turns out time is of the essence when it comes to home shopping, just because there's so much competition to snap up every bit of inventory that's on the market. It's it's pretty crazy. Talk to people in real estate and they'll tell you, we've never seen anything quite like this. Well, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes to the table with decades of experience, stability, and clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. If you're in St. George, you can stop by the office at 619 South Bluff Street. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So, the purges have begun And if you are one of those people who stands to lose your job because you are standing on your convictions, um, I'm sorry that you are going through this. I'm sorry you are the one who is bearing the brunt of of carrying, you know, the responsibility and carrying the torch of liberty in this way. It's not fair. And there are some things that are kind of sick and wrong about our society right now. Unfortunately, you are caught up in the middle of this. But I am... I'm still trying to noodle out what are what are some of the how could we build a parallel society where the non-vaccinated or let me put it another way the non-compliant are able to resist the demands being made on them by the uh, you know the new grand inquisitors and can still live their lives be productive and support themselves and support their families. I was halfway joking around with a friend the other day about how, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that at some point we're going to see a barter economy come into being. It will be called something very dangerous and illegal like the black market. But whatever it is, whatever the alternative is to that uh, rigid system of compliance, I want to be a part of it. I want to make sure that I'm doing my part to resist and I can only speak for myself on this, so I won't try to drag you into you know, my idea of, of uh, how that can happen. I'm willing to experience discomfort. I'm willing to downshift my lifestyle, perhaps significantly. Not that it was much of a lifestyle before. I wasn't exactly running what the jet said, but I'm willing to endure a lot more discomfort. And I'm sorry for the people who are already there. I just want you to know I'm spending time actively thinking, trying to, to uh, brainstorm, how can we help these people? How can we support these folks? And by the way, I'm open to ideas. You can always give me feedback. There's, in the show notes at the com. there is a feedback feature. You can either send me a written message, you can send me a voicemail if you would like. But I know there are other enterprising minds out there far better than mine that are looking for solutions. I think uh, I think we have that duty to help each other. I hope we'll do it. All right. Wanted to uh, <clears throat> point out that First Amendment Day, I believe it came and went. I think it was last Saturday, and uh, I I'm a little bit ashamed that uh, First Amendment Day came and went, and I didn't formally celebrate it. Because I kind of like that First Amendment, and I've got a great article here from Jan Newharth that reminds us while we may say we cherish the First Amendment's protections. The truth of the matter is very few Americans could actually name the five freedoms specifically protected. She says, in this simmering season of division and distrust, there's one thing that just about all of us agree on. We treasure the First Amendment. So I think it was last Saturday was First Amendment Day, a day to celebrate the document that allows all Americans, without government interference, to practice a faith or not to speak freely, to publish ideas, gather in a support or gather in support or protest, and to petition the government for change. It marks the day in 1789 when Congress sent the amendments that became the Constitution's Bill of Rights to the states for approval. Now to salute the occasion, the Freedom Forum, an organization devoted to fostering First Amendment freedoms for all, will release a survey conducted in July and August of 2020. When we asked more than 3,000 Americans how they feel about the First Amendment, our respondents came from every corner of the country and spanned age, gender, race and economic background, a true representation of our diverse nation. And the big takeaway from this survey, she says, titled The First Amendment, Where America Stands, was amid our disagreements. On everything from politics to the pandemic, one value unites the vast majority of us. 94% of respondents across generations and the political spectrum view the First Amendment as vital. But we don't agree on much else about it. Some findings surprised us, and we've been surveying Americans on this topic since 1997. So here are a couple of the things that were surprising. More than a third of Americans would give up free speech to get rid of hate speech but almost an equal number support unfettered free speech. 69% say social media sites should be held responsible for allowing false or misleading information to be posted. They also found people are equally divided, roughly 37% to 37%, over whether business owners should have to fulfill customer requests that violate their religious beliefs, while the, number of, or the remainder of respondents say they neither agree nor disagree. Nearly 60% say the news media should be acting as watchdogs on the powerful. But get this, only 14% trust journalists. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> 75% don't believe that government mandates uh, due to COVID-19 infringe on the rights of assembly, speech, and religion. But one in four people disagree. Dang. In a year when racial protest or protests over racial injustice swept the nation, most people, 69%, have never participated in a protest, rally, or march. And 73% of people have signed a petition. Only 14% could name it as one of the five First Amendment freedoms. So why does this matter? Well, the article says understanding your rights is vital. The First Amendment connects us as Americans, protects our right to express our deepest beliefs in word and action. Yet most Americans can't name the five freedoms it guarantees religion, speech, press, assembly, and petition. In order to preserve and protect these fundamental rights for future generations, we all need to know, understand, and defend these freedoms. And here's the kicker not just for ourselves but also for each other, including those with whom we disagree. This is why these crusades against hate speech are are so ridiculous. It's so subjective. Well, this person is engaging in hate speech. Okay, what constitutes hate? Well, uh, it's bad. Right, but everybody's just left to their own emotional association to fill in the blanks what that bad is? No. We need a more objective measure, not just, I don't like what you're saying, and I think it needs to be banned. You need to be purged. (laughs) Forget that. The 45 words of the First Amendment guarantee free expression, but the spirit of the First Amendment calls for more. To speak and be heard, to listen. Because out of the marketplace of ideas more than 200 years ago came American democracy. I would say it's slightly different came than American Democratic Republic, but it does not equally serve us all. But the freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment enable us to speak truth to power, shine a light on injustice and ignite or oppose change. It's through exercising our First Amendment freedoms we can ensure democracy lives up to its highest ideals for all Americans. Jan Newharth says... Celebrate the First Amendment by doing something to promote the diversity of experiences and perspectives that define our democracy. Share your deepest beliefs with someone. Reach across a political divide or your family's dinner table and debate current events. That should go over well. Uh, Support your local news outlet by subscribing. Join a new group on social media and explore perspectives that are different from yours. Sign a petition for a cause you support. And toast the fact that we share these First Amendment freedoms. Not just when we exercise them for ourselves, but when we defend the rights of others to do the same. It's a little idealistic, but I, I agree largely with what Jan Newharth is saying here. Don't be afraid to speak the truth or to acknowledge the truth or to live the truth just because it's something that's unpopular at the moment. I mean, we're finding out right now who the who the sunshine patriots are and who the people are who, you know, yeah, I like it, I'll wave the flag, but, you know, the first time they face any criticism, they, you know, crumble up like a little Kleenex. Oh, that's scary, somebody called me names. It's going to take thicker skin, and it's going to take a backbone of steel to get through some of the different challenges that are building around us right now. You and I are up to this task But we got to set aside those petty differences and and support each other. That means even if somebody says something you don't like, don't try to silence them. See if you can offer a better idea, but offer it in love, not anger.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey,
1: welcome back to the show. Please check out my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You will find also a link to resources for wrong thinkers. And these are some of the different news aggregator sites. These are some of the, the different uh, different organizations who on a daily or even on a weekly basis Put out good information that is thought-provoking, I believe to be factual, although I'm not telling you everything they've written is absolutely the truth and you, shouldn't, you should hang on every word. I mean, you get to make up your mind what to do with the information, but I'm doing my level best to help direct you to sources that can give you clear, principled insights on what's taking place without getting too bogged down in red state versus blue state mentality. Seems like uh, Seems like nothing productive happens the more politicized things get. Now, having said that, it's very clear the political class right now is pushing hard to consolidate its power over the people. And it's bad enough when we see this, uh, 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 when we see it happening in places like, well, Afghanistan, for other, you know, for, for one example, or in other places where we have drone strikes going on and sanctions and military, you know, bases being built up to, you know, make sure that these people know that we're filling the vacuum here. I mean, we recognize what's going on sometimes in these other countries and we think, wow, sure would suck to be there. But Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center says, you know, when you look at Washington, D.C.'s power over the states here in America. That government is looking more imperial by the day. It's not just it's not just for foreigners. In fact, he starts off his article uh, in in an article published by the uh, Mises Wire. Jeff Deist wrote something quite profound. D.C. is very much an imperial power with respect to the 50 states, not just in the Middle East. Now, Britannica defines imperialism as the state policy, practice, or advocacy of extending power and dominion, especially by direct territorial acquisition or by gaining political and economic control of other territories and peoples. Mike Meharry says, we tend to equate American imperialism with its aggressive foreign policy and unconstitutional wars. But as Deist correctly points out, the central government in D.C. has exercised imperial policies over the 50 states for decades. It hasn't used bombs to project power, but its domination of America's 50 sovereign political societies has been every bit as complete as its domination of Iraq. He says most people think of America as a singular nation, but that's not how the U.S. political system was designed. The nation was not intended to exercise political supremacy in the federal system. The states were supposed to do that. In other words, the states are sovereign. And when we use the term state sovereignty, we don't really mean the territory within its borders is sovereign. And we don't mean the state government is sovereign. What we mean is the political society formed by the people of that state is sovereign. Madison explained this in his Report of 1800, defending the Virginia Resolutions of 1798. These resolutions asserted the state's right and duty to interpose in case of a deliberate, palpable, and dangerous exercise of other powers not granted by the Constitution. So from the Report of 1800, it says, The other position involved in this branch of of the resolution, namely that the states are parties to the Constitution or compact, is in the judgment of the committee, equally free from objection. It is indeed true, Madison wrote, that the term states is sometimes used in a vague sense and sometimes in different senses, according to the subject to which it's applied. Thus, it sometimes means the separate sections of territory occupied by the political societies within each. Sometimes the particular governments established by those societies. Sometimes those societies is organized into those particular governments. And lastly, it means the people composing those political societies in their highest sovereign capacity. Although it might be wished that the perfection of language admitted less diversity in the signification of the same words, yet little inconvenience is produced by it. Where the true sense can be collected with certainty from the different applications, in the present instance, whatever different constructions of the term states in the resolution may have been entertained, all will at least concur that the last mentioned in that last mentioned, that about the people composing these political societies. Because in that sense, the Constitution was submitted to the states in the sense that the states ratified it, and in that sense, the term state, of the term states, they are consequently parties to the compact from which the powers of the federal government result. End quote. Now, when we understand the people of the states ratified the Constitution, not one people As a nation, it follows that the states retain their nature as sovereign political societies in the constitutional system, only relinquishing the authority and power specifically delegated to the general government. In all other areas, the states retain their independent, sovereign character. Now, over the years, the federal government has usurped state authority. Over time, the central government in Washington, D.C. came to completely dominate the states, The federal government's power over Florida, California, Montana, and every other state is every bit as illegitimate as its domination of Iraq, Afghanistan, and Somalia. It represents a soft form of imperialism. Now, the founding generation used the term consolidation to describe a centralized government with vast power and control, and many founders warned of its danger. For instance, during the Virginia ratifying convention, Patrick Henry issued a stark warning Quote, dangers are to be apprehended in whatever manner we proceed, but those of a consolidation are the most destructive. End quote. And he went on to warn that consolidation would end in the destruction of our liberties. July 25th, 1788, William Davy told the North Carolina ratifying convention that so extensive a country as this can never be managed by one consolidated government. Thomas Jefferson also warned about the problem of consolidation as a practical matter in an 1800 letter to Gideon Granger, wisely observing that the United States were too large to be governed by a central authority. Jefferson said, our country is too large to have all its affairs directed by a single government. Public servants at a distance and from under the eye of their constituents will, from the circumstance of distance, be unable to administer and overlook all the details necessary for the good government of the citizen and the same circumstance by rendering detection impossible to their constituents, will invite the public agents to corruption, plunder, and waste. I can't think of three words that better describe what is happening daily in Washington, D.C. than corruption, plunder, and waste. Now, Mike Meharry says a few politicians and bureaucrats simply cannot competently deal with local issues thousands of miles away. Try as they might and yet Americans have rushed headlong into consolidation to their detriment. Dice highlights the end result of consolidation by saying, we know the federal government can't manage COVID. It can't manage Afghanistan. It can't manage debt or the dollar or spending or entitlements. It can't even run federal elections, for God's sake, much less provide security or justice or social cohesion. Washington, D.C. imperialism has been an utter failure both abroad and at home. And as Patrick Henry warned, it is destroying our liberties. Great words from Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center, which I strongly recommend as a great resource to better understand the relationship that the states are supposed to have with the federal government. I know the, the war between the states supposedly said, well, this is a union in, indivisible and nobody can leave, but... Once you understand the history of how the Constitution came about and what those states represented, you've got to go back to American history. You've got to be able to look at, uh, you know, what happened when the, the colonists stood up and said, we are going to claim our independence from Great Britain. And, of course, the king said, no, you won't, sent his troops to ensure that they wouldn't. A war was fought, a revolution, if you will. Freedom was secured, and it was in the Treaty of Paris in 1783 that you can find solid evidence that uh, these states were not just one conglomerate nation all mixed together, but they were separate and individual little republics. How do we know this? Because when King George signed the Treaty of Paris, he addressed it not to the United States, but to each individual state at that time. There's a great civics lesson in this, but suffice it to say, The states are supposed to be separate. They're supposed to have their own way of doing things, and and there's only those very few areas where their common interests overlap in which the Constitution allows the exercise of certain powers delegated by the states to the federal government. But, of course, that model's been turned on its ear since about 1865, and, uh, I don't know, we're building to a, a, a crisis of some sort. I don't know if it's going to stick together. I know some people are very terrified of the idea that, uh, you know, perhaps states should secede. Perhaps we should we should peacefully break up. All I know is uh, the balance of power can't be fixed until people clearly understand what it's supposed to be. And we're miles away from that right now. So we better get studying
0: if we don't already know. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Glad you could join us. This is where we get together to help fight the battle for your mind. It's not that I want to win your mind and then, you know, take possession of it, but I want to encourage you to stand up for it, claim it, claim your right as a free individual, and find courage and camaraderie among people who aren't afraid to engage in wrongthink. Sometimes it's the best thing you can do. I've got some special guests joining me in this segment of the show, and I want to welcome Andrew and Danny Palmer. And they're both part of the Thomas Jefferson Education Community which will make sense to some people, but not to others. But uh, we're going to ask them to talk a little bit about themselves. Uh, Andrew, Danny, very good to catch up with the two of you. Um, We're going to talk about your new venture. It's an academy called Christina Academy. But before we get there, tell us just a little bit about yourselves and your educational journey, would you please? Uh, So this is
3: Danny. Yeah, I came out to Monticello College back in, I'm pretty sure it was 2016. Um, I think I was about 21 years old, and uh, I just really enjoyed the environment. Uh, I learned a lot more about farming. I kind of grew up in a farming area, um, but I learned a lot more about it. I was more directly involved in in planting and helping animals and, and things like that. And um, and I really enjoyed the academics and and a lot of um, a lot of the learning that we did here. So um, one thing, as I was going through the process over the past four years, because I eventually graduated, um, as I realized I probably could have done this earlier in my life, and um, and I just I never took the opportunity to. So now uh, we want to give that opportunity to kids at an even younger age, and and try to help them out with that.
1: Okay. Andrew, tell us about your journey.
2: Uh, so I I grew up in Gig Harbor, Washington. I went to public school, actually, my whole life. And then I went on to a regular college, BYU-Idaho, for a little while. And that, that wasn't working out for me. Um, I failed a lot of classes because they were too easy, which is kind of hard to believe. They're <laughs> so boring. Couldn't even handle it. I just would not do that boring, boring homework that would have taken you know some hours but not not any brain power. So I gave up on that and kind of drifted for a couple years. And then I came out to college and that's where Danny and I met and got married. And so here we are at Monticello college. I'm actually just finishing up my master's program. Um, This year in November, I'll be be graduating from that master's program. So that's been been my educational uh, journey. And as far as that goes, it's been very interesting to enter the the TJ ed community, the Thomas Jefferson education community. I, I didn't really know it existed when I found out it existed, I was I was interested, and there's been a lot of things that I found very interesting about it. A lot of good things, kind of some maybe not so good things, and so I just wanted to start start a school that would hopefully continue the really good things about that, and maybe compensate a little bit for some of the things that weren't weren't as great in the in the community as I've kind of gone on a journey to discover more about it.
1: Well, it's clear there's a lot of stuff that's changing around us. Every day. And, you know, I I was once one of those people who really tried to hang on to things the way they were, you know, play it safe and never, never, ever change if possible. It's just not possible. And a lot of people are evaluating different educational choices. Some people considering, do I want to go to traditional college or is there a better use of my, uh, you know, time and money than to, you know, to get what's being offered there? Um, I, I know the TJ Ed paradigm for me was a huge shift. And, in fact, I was a little bit angry when I first discovered it because it meant I was going to have to make changes, and I did, and, I, and I've learned how to reinvent myself. But along the way, you learn that learning is a lifelong process. It doesn't stop. And so tell me a little bit about what, the, what was the germ of the idea for the Christina Academy, and, and how are you going to help young people particularly capture that love of learning so that they don't just you know be students while they're young but actually become lifelong learners?
2: Well, that's a great question. the The germ for the Christina Academy was we've always known that we wanted to teach, we wanted to be in education. Um, figured we've got to start somewhere, so we're going to start with this online school so we can reach more people from farther away. As far as um, helping people to be lifelong learners, that's a really good question. That's a really hard subject that I feel like a lot of teachers and parents both struggle with. How do I get my kids to not get educated, but to educate themselves and learn better and and you know, last longer. So the, a lot of that is NTJ it already. It's it's colloquiums, which is a type of discussion group where you read a book, you mark up the book, you come together and you read passages from that book, and that can inspire a lot of people to do better. Another huge part of it that I feel like it's missed is individualizing curricula, and what that means is letting students participate heavily in the choice of what they're going to learn. So at Christina Academy we have a set curricula, especially for the first year. And that set curricula is very flexible. It, it's it got a lot of books on it. But if you've read some of those books, we're going to change some of those books out. We're still going to discuss some of the same books so that way we can make sure that we all are kind of on the same page with discussions. But science, you can do you can do what we've got. Or if you want to go deeper, if you've already know that stuff, we can do more. You Same with the history. If you already know some of this stuff, we can do more. So it's is really about letting the student discover how fun and awesome learning is and then helping them get inspired to go do their own study. Okay, two quick I questions. Like, two two quick oh, yeah. questions
1: here, Danny. How how old are the students? I mean, what's what's the 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 target uh, audience that that you want to this message to get to? And secondly, I want you guys to talk a little bit, talk about some of the books here. Because I want people to understand, we're not talking about, okay, go pick a book from the Dr. Seuss shelf and, you know, I mean, we're, talk, <laughs> we're talking foundational classics that people have been learning from <laughs> for millennia. So, uh, you know, if you will, who are you trying to reach? And then tell us about the kind of things that they're going to be delving into.
3: Um, okay, so the, the age range is going to be about 14 to 16 age range, obviously. If you feel like you can go younger, then we would, we wouldn't stop you. If you are older and really want to do it, you know, by all means, that you should, you should always continue to want to learn. And, and we would, we will, and we do, um, help you out with that. Um, as far as the books go, not knocking Dr. Seuss. I think he's got a lot of great (laughs) stuff, (laughs) Um, but. I think there's some good in-depth subjects for maybe some younger kids. But uh, um, the curriculum we have is, um, oh, I'm trying to think. Uh, We have a religious block uh, in, um, uh, not really a block, just like a little segment of, of some other world religions that we go over. And one of them is Islam. And with that book, we've paired it with uh, a contemporary book called I Am Malala um, by Malala. Oh, I, can't, I can never remember how to say her last name. Anyway, Yusuf, Yusuf, Fanny, anyway, I Am Malala. It's a famous book. Anyway, um, we, we put it on our curriculum because we realized we wanted a perspective of somebody in the Middle East not currently, but, you know, fairly recently. Um, and we want to understand more of their perspective, how they think, get a more broad image, because media is so hard to understand nowadays, or you never know whose side is whose. And I, we really enjoyed that because it, it came from a girl who is from Pakistan. She wrote a book. She's really into education herself. Her father um, started schools and was uh, was kind of doing the same thing we want to do. Um, and that really inspired us to put that in the curriculum as well.
2: Another book I want to highlight is uh, Cicero's Republic. You heard of that one? That's, uh, Cicero's Republic. Actually, no. Really? Well, no. Cicero, a guy who lived right at the same time as around Caesar, wrote a book about a republic and he... Talked about mixed government. This is way back in Roman times and how it could work and how it could be better. The saddest thing about the book is about half of it is missing. It's gone. We don't have it. It can't be translated. The manuscripts are gone. In fact, the worst part is he gets right up to say, Well, I'm going to tell you about how a mixed government could work really well. And then we're missing two pages. But <laughs> there's still a lot of good stuff in there. So this is kind of the caliber of books. book. So we're going to talk about, you know, with I am Malala, Islam and world cultures, and with Cicero's Republic, some of the foundational ideas for liberty and for, you know, the beginning of this country and just some of the some of the natural laws that um, that the liberal arts is a lot of times founded on.
1: OK, we're we're up against the break here, so we're going to take a very quick commercial break when we come back and we continue our conversation <laughs> with Andrew and with Danny. We're going to talk a little bit about what they will accomplish, what these students are going to accomplish in their curriculum, but we'll also talk about how um, knowing the classics of Western civilization doesn't just make you smart, doesn't make you, you know, likely to be picked for uh, trivial pursuit or you know to be somebody's partner on Jeopardy or their lifeline, but actually prepares you to be just a better human being overall. So we will take our break. We'll be back just the other side of these messages.
0: is the Brian Hyde show. This is the Brian Hyde show. And just like that we are back.
1: We're talking with Andrew and Danny Palmer and they are the founders of a brand new academy called Christina Academy. And I, I hope that you're enjoying their, their message about uh, their educational journey because this is exciting stuff, especially for young students. Um, as we went to break, Andrew, you were mentioning liberal arts. And everybody kind of has their own favorite liberal arts joke. Hey, what do you say when you get your liberal arts, uh, you know, degree? You want fries with that? Ha, ha, ha. But liberal <laughs> arts is, is the backbone of Western civilization. Talk to me about what people need to know about that, that concept.
2: So a liberal arts education isn't, isn't what people think. It's actually the education that aristocrats have gotten for thousands of years. Um, as a as kind of a deep history explorer myself, I, I've seen that most of the monarchs who ever lived, most of the people who ruled, had a type of education where they, they learned from great books, and they discussed it with mentors and teachers. And they really got a, a really strong foundation in what other people have done. One is Plutarch's lives has always been read, you know. And so the people who really have changed the world have gotten have gotten this kind of education. And it wasn't always from the school. It wasn't always with a degree. Often it was just at home or with the people that got hired to, to educate them.
3: Yeah, I think it's really – Interesting as you look throughout history, I m- some of my favorites are like de Tocqueville. Uh, you know, Democracy in America. He he came over from France and is is just making all of these observations. And it and one thing I'm learning through this whole liberal arts education process because it is a process. It's not just because I have a liberal arts degree now with a BA behind my name. <laughs> Yay. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that's not going to be learning anymore. You know, I do want fries with that, but.
1: Uh, <laughs> well, I, um, I I think about, I think it was Plutarch who said, you know, the, the mind isn't a vessel to be filled. It's a fire to be kindled. And that's the kind exactly. of that's the kind of learning you guys are promoting. Um, I wanted to, to ask you a little bit about some of the, the things that after the end of this one year course, there are some things that you want your students to be able to, to do or to, to be able to have accomplished. And and I wonder if I could get you to expand just on, on a couple of these. Uh, one of them was to have a basic understanding of Western history from the Mesopotamian to the Cold War eras. Why does it matter to understand history?
2: Well, it matters for so many reasons. Um, if you understand history, you can understand why things went down the way they went down. And you can understand how current events um, will possibly affect your life and how things might go in the future. Now, history changes and we're constantly in a shift. Right now we're living in a communication age and that changes how everything works. But some of these really foundational things of how Western civilization has developed has really affected how I view the world. And as I've done a few 180s I don't want to go into here just in my thought processes and just in you know the way I, I treat other people. So I just feel like it's very important to learn our roots, where we come from and why, you know, things are unfolding the way they are in our current age. Yeah.
3: I think think it's, it's a, a lot of just looking at human nature. How do humans interact with each other over a period of time over history? How am I supposed to be interacting with people? What, what is the good? What is the bad? What is the moral? What is the corrupt? And the more we learn about those two sides, the more I feel like I personally can make uh, a better decision on how to be a better person, because that's something that's very important to me.
1: Okay. I I know um, you also, you have mentioned colloquium where, you know, they get together in groups and discuss stuff. I I wish more people understood how wonderful a tool that is to, to learn something. Um, Until I was introduced to it, though, I didn't know what I didn't know. But if, if there's a subject that I really want to get a better feel for, I love that setting where you get together and you read the same thing and everybody comments and everybody has a little bit different perspective. Now, writing is important, too. And Andrew, you mentioned that writing lab is going to be a big part of this. You want these young people to be better writers at the end of this class than they were going into it. Why is that?
2: Well, writing can be very, very important. It can be used to persuade people. It can be used just to jot down your thoughts. You can go back and read what you wrote. It also helps you in thinking. If you're a better writer, you become a better thinker. And I kind of want to go into how that process works, if you don't mind. Um, So… And when we do writing, we do it very different than regular school. So regular school is going to give you a writing assignment. They're going to say write about, you know, let's say Plutarch. They probably wouldn't even click Plutarch, but let's pretend like they did. So you'd write a little paper. You'd turn it into the teacher, and you'd get an A or a B or a C or a D with a couple circles of why you got that grade. And then at least in my experience, when I've gone back to that teacher and said, hey, why did I get a B on this paper? How could I make this an A? They kind of hum and hung go, well, I, I don't know. Like there's like, I just didn't like it as much as I like the other kids' papers. That, that's not what they said. But you know. What I mean? <laughs> so when we do a writing lab, we're going to sit down with these students and every single student's going to read every other student's paper. We're all going to mark things. We're all going to ask questions. We're all going to really look into the content. Who is your audience? Who are you writing to? Why are you writing this? Is this trying to persuade me of something? Is there something you want me to feel? How can we, how can we make it more clear? How can we make it um, portray your message better? So we're going to go over every single paper. We're going to look at them. We're going to make corrections. We're going to make suggestions. We'll do, we'll do spelling and grammar and stuff too. But we're really looking for content. And then after they've gone back and they've corrected it, no, we're not done. We're going to do it again. We're going to do it a second time at least, maybe a third time. And the reason is each time we do this, um, they're going to learn more and go deeper into how they can improve their writing. And just by naturally doing that a few times, they'll pick up on what works, what doesn't work, and they'll become much, much, much better writers. I was a pretty okay writer when I came to Monticello College, but I am so much better now because of this um, writing lab that we've been able to do. And so I just want that for, for our students too.
3: I think another process that I really like in the process is that it's continuing to pull out of the student more about themselves. I don't really care what they write about per se. I just want them to own it. You know, it doesn't have to be the most amazing thing that I've ever heard in my life, or it doesn't even have to be something I'm interested in. I just want A, them to be interested in it, and B, them to really... Want to present it? You know what? What is the best that we can pull out of them in that particular subject that they're interested in?
1: Okay, we've got about two minutes here before we're we're up against the clock. Where does the name Christina Academy come from?
2: <laughs> so when I was reading Durant, I came across this woman, Christina, Queen of Sweden, who um, gathered scholars and went around Europe and just just loved to learn. She was a real learner. And she really loved to be in that academic environment. And so she she funded learning and by some of the best scholars in the 1600s. And so she's our namesake.
1: OK, well, that, I have to I had not heard of her, but now now I'm intrigued. Where will people be able to go to get more information? I understand your your um, your school year is going to be starting, I believe, this next month. Where can people go if they want to get information and, and get people signed up?
3: Uh, Christina academy.org that's Christina with a K um and yeah we've got all the information there on on the website um all the information on how to enroll and uh, or uh email us at at Palmer at Christina academy.org and that's Christina with a K again
2: yeah that's how they spell it in Swedish
1: (laughs) okay I'm I'm really excited for the two of you, and, and I'm especially happy that this is the kind of thing that people could participate. the The students that you're looking for could do this from anywhere because of, of the the remote nature of this. So, um, I will have a link in the show notes, which people, which I guess my my listeners can access this at the Brian dot com. We'll have a link to Christina Academy dot org and. Uh, um, Andrew and Danny, thank you so much for being my guests. And uh, thanks for sticking your necks out and, and creating something that uh, hopefully is going to help people for for many, many generations to come.
2: Yeah, thank you, Brian. Thank
3: you so much.
1: Alright, gotta take a quick break We'll be back here in just a few moments I want to give a quick shout out too, to Lifesavingfood.com That would be my friend Kendall Whiting Who so generously has announced A 20% discount for my listeners If you buy food storage through him It's ReadyWise Food Storage 25 year shelf life Wonderful selection 20% discount If you use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E At checkout There's a link in the show notes At the com. We'll be back in just a minute
0: this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show all
1: right welcome back to the show Hey, our program is brought to you in part today by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I know that uh, buying a home is always kind of an adventure since it's probably the biggest thing you're ever going to buy in your life. But boy, is it interesting when the real estate market is on fire and it has been a crazy real estate market throughout the Intermountain West. So many people relocating and you know they all have their reasons. But here's the bottom line. If you're looking for a home, And you need financing. This is for my listeners in the state of Utah. You should talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah, and get that loan quickly. As in without delay. As in before somebody else can buy your dream home out from under you. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She clearly understands what the lenders are looking for. She clearly understands what you as a borrower are going to need. And she's there to make it happen. She has the clout through Patriot Home Mortgage to get you the loan you need at the best rates possible. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can either call her at 435-703-4522 or there's an email link located in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Click on that and get in touch with her. Well, I have a story to share with you, and it's one of those stories that I kind of hesitate to share, just because this is the kind of thing that that could make some people fearful. And my goal, as always, is not to make people fearful. It's not to uh, to build upon their anger, or otherwise, you know, try to hack their emotions and get them. See, you got to agree with me, you know, because this is scary. But if you have noticed, if you've paid attention to the Empty store shelves that you'll see occasionally now in the in the grocery stores, or maybe even in some of the big box stores, or if you are in any kind of uh, manufacturing industry, there are certain things that are really getting tough to to get your hands on. I mean, I was reading earlier this morning, um, two hundred and ten billion dollars in business. Lost this year by the automotive industry because they can't get their hands on semiconductors, you know, computer chips for the vehicles. Pretty interesting stuff. But it's time to acknowledge the elephant in the room, and so I'm going to try to do this in the most productive way possible. But uh, those, those shortages, those breakdowns in supply chains, they're happening. And this is not the time to panic, so don't, uh, you know, don't drop what you're doing and go clean out your bank account and, you know, fist fight people in the toilet paper aisle over who gets the last roll. But let's pay attention. couple things that I wanted to, to bring up here. Michael Snyder, I've followed this guy for many years, and I know people will sometimes say, well, people who warn about bad things happening are really just chicken little, and they, they may get lucky once in a while. I think Michael Snyder's actually been a pretty principled voice of warning especially for food self-sufficiency and making sure that you're, you're taking care of your needs. Food is, is so critical. But he says he's seeing the mainstream media starting to use terms like worsening and foreseeable future when they describe the shortages that we're seeing. So here's what Michael Snyder says. He says, look, these shortages are happening. Now the mainstream media is warning us to brace ourselves because they're going to get worse. And there's another article I'm going to share here in a few minutes, and that's a, a discussion he had with an industry insider in groceries, telling a little bit about what was going on. But first, let's, let's talk about the fact that there's a reality here that people really may not want to acknowledge, but it would be wise not to stick your fingers in your ears or close your eyes and start chanting just because this is, is a little bit unsettling. Michael Snyder said after the article that he had published, uh, after the discussion with the Grocery Insider, emails came pouring in from people all around the country. Now, there were a few that didn't want to believe things were as bad as he was saying, but he said there were a lot of other emails that confirmed the conditions that he was describing are at least as bad as he described. In fact, there was one extremely alarming email from someone that works in the supermarket industry that uh, he says he wants to share in the coming days. So this is outside of his conversation with a grocery insider. But he says, for most of us, we have lived our entire lives without ever having to be concerned about shortages. And he's right. We're spoiled. And that's, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but we probably should acknowledge for what it is. We have lived through unprecedented prosperity. And just a few years ago, it would have seemed crazy to suggest that maybe we're on the verge of widespread shortages here in the United States. But Michael Snyder says, well, here we are, and we're being told that the shortages are going to continue to intensify. In fact, the Washington Post is telling us the global chip shortage is showing signs of worsening. Here's from their article. The global semiconductor shortage that has paralyzed automakers for nearly a year shows signs of worsening as new coronavirus infections halt chip assembly lines in Southeast Asia, forcing more car companies and electronics manufacturers to suspend production. A wave of Delta variant cases in Malaysia, Vietnam, and the Philippines is causing production delays at factories that cut and package semiconductors, creating new bottlenecks on top of those caused by the soaring demand for chips. Now, This is really bad news because the chip shortage is affecting thousands of other industries. For example, global vehicle production is way down due to the chip crisis, and that's resulted in a growing shortage of new vehicles on dealer lots all over the nation. From, from uh, I believe this is the same article. Let me double check. Yeah. The chip famine is starving the auto, the global auto industry and putting car buyers on a strict diet. So far this year, 7 million cars that were supposed to be produced haven't been. That's according to IHS market data. Auto companies are shutting down production lines for weeks at a time, furloughing employees as a result of the chip shortage. Toyota has slashed its production 40% in September. All this is hitting consumers. Car dealers' lots across the U.S. are sparse. The inventory of new cars in the U.S. is only about 30% of pre-pandemic levels. And buyers snap up used cars as soon as they find them. End quote. Yeah. Yeah. As someone who's been in the used car market here recently and just, you know, kicking tires and looking around, whew, it's, getting, it's getting pretty slim pickings. Reminds me of the aftermath of cash for clunkers, but we'll talk about that another time. Now, Michael Snyder says, of course, we aren't facing a shortage of everything. There are certain products that are still quite plentiful, and there are some areas that are being affected more than others. So what you're seeing in your neck of the woods could differ from what other people are experiencing. But there are some shortages that are definitely being felt all over the country. He says when the first COVID pandemic started to sweep across the U.S. last year, it sparked a huge run on toilet paper. And now that's starting to happen again. Costco Wholesale is having trouble fulfilling toilet paper orders. And the membership-only warehouse retail chain is now issuing a warning to customers that have purchased the common household item online saying, you may face delays in receiving your orders. And unfortunately, this could potentially just be the beginning. According to one expert that was interviewed by Fox Business, there will soon be a nas- another massive shortage of toilet paper. The U.S. will experience another massive shortage of toilet paper as soon as supply chains continue to suffer, soon rather, as supply chains continue to suffer due to pandemic related issues, one retail expert warned. Product shortages are as bad as they were in the beginning of COVID. They're coming back, said Bert Flickinger on Fox Business's Mornings with Maria. Now, Michael Snyder says, did you ever imagine we would be talking about such a thing in late 2021? I mean, a lot of optimists out there had assumed the economy would be booming by now. But instead, the machinery of our economy has gotten gummed up really badly. And here's some more good news for you. At this point, there's even a growing shortage of alcoholic beverages. The Pennsylvania State Board in charge of consumer liquor sales announced last week it was limiting customers to two bottles of certain alcoholic beverages per day. The Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board said the purchase limit on select items, including Hennessy cognac, Buffalo Trace bourbon, and Patron C- tequila, will be in place for the foreseeable future. Liquor store customers in North Carolina are encountering out of stock signs instead of their favorite spirits, and an ongoing amid an ongoing shortage of of uh, liquor there. Now, Michael Snyder says, look, of course, many of these problems could be solved if we simply had enough workers. He says, as I discussed the other day, we're in the midst of the worst labor shortage that we have ever experienced. All over the nation, critical labor shortages are crippling the ability of organizations to get things done. And now Joe Biden's new mandates threaten to make things a lot worse. I got to pump the brakes here because we're coming up on the, the the commercial break. But this is not intended to send you into any kind of panic. I understand it's it's unpleasant news. It's not something that I I find any satisfaction. See, told you so. No, I'm I'm sad to see this as well because I know this this means that people who are already in in a bad place, either financially, economically, or or even just mentally. I'm sure those empty store shelves or the, the possibility of, well, you can't get that anymore. You're going to have to wait for months or something. That's not going to help things. Now, let's stay positive And let's remember, we still have the option of uh, quietly, consistently, you know, preparing as we go. So let's not lose sight of the fact that uh, we have a good head start on a lot of this. But let's not pretend it doesn't exist. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: I'm sharing a couple of articles here from Michael Snyder, who has actually been warning for quite some time, years, to be prepared for potential food shortages. And it's hard for most of us to imagine, right? Because we, we are used to just going to the store and, hey, they have, you know, whatever we want. Sure, the prices may be going up. But, boy, if you have, if you have been to the grocery store lately, you'll notice sticker shock is becoming a thing there. It, it's not just, you know, when you go to the car dealership. Sticker shock is a real thing every time you go to purchase groceries. And even my kids are starting to pick up on, wow, Is this getting smaller? or the packages getting smaller? And it's like, yeah, you know, it looks like the price stayed the same, but you now only get 12 ounces of bacon instead of 16 ounces. And speaking of bacon, what the heck has happened to the price of the greatest food known to man? All right, I'll try not to get sidetracked on this. The bottom line is even our mainstream media is beginning to notice and use terms like worsening or foreseeable future to describe the shortages that are taking place. And there's a labor shortage on top of this. Michael Snyder says, if you can believe it, even NPR is running stories now about how Biden's uh, vaccine mandates are going to cause gigantic headaches for employers. Here's from an NPR article. I can't afford to lose anyone, says Ted Leneve, CEO of Acura, or, uh, Acura Healthcare, which operates 34 nursing homes, assisted living facilities in Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska and South Dakota. Because of staffing shortages, they've had to limit admissions, turning down patients coming from hospitals. With about 1,000 of his employees, that's 38% of his workforce, unvaccinated, Laniv is calling on the federal government to provide a testing option for healthcare workers. Now, he says, I don't see how I can just lay off 1,000 people. I'd have no one to take care of the patients. There's nowhere to send the patients. Think about that. If Biden doesn't change his approach, that one company alone is going to have to let go about 1,000 workers. Ah, that'll help things. Mm Mm-hmm. Look at the problems we're solving. Michael Snyder says Biden's mandate should start going into effect around the end of the year, and that could represent a real turning point for the economy. Now, he says we are moving into such troubled times, but most people desperately want to believe better times are just around the corner. Through good times and bad, the U.S. economy has always been highly resilient, and most of us would like to assume it will continue to be highly resilient. But the truth is that things are starting to break down on a very basic level. And the outlook as we head toward the end of the year, it's not good. Now, again, this is not information that I'm I'm trying to, to hype, to, to sensationalize and, you know, pump the fear into your veins and get your adrenaline going. It's just acknowledgement that I, I've been trying to get my own mind around this now for weeks. And I think I'm finally, you know, at, at that point of acceptance, you know, through the, in the grieving process that things really have changed. And the the prosperous times that we have enjoyed up to this point, I loved them as well. I wish that they would return. But I do believe that ship has sailed. This doesn't mean we're all going to be stumbling around in rags, you know, and eating trash and who knows, rats, whatever. It just means that we have got to acknowledge the reality that's there. And the only way through the trouble is, or the only way to move forward is through the trouble. You can't, I don't think there's a way to do an and run. There's no safe place to sit it out. I wanted to touch on a couple of points from Michael Snyder's article where he talks to an industry insider who says, who he says revealed the truth about what's really behind the shortages at our local supermarkets. This is an email that he got from a friend who said, I'm self-employed for 25 years now, independent IGA affiliated grocery store in coastal Maine. Supply issues are real, says this reader. My supplier has limited us on orders for about a month now, limited the physical number of cases we can order. Their issue is and was mainly the help crisis in the warehouse, order pickers and truck drivers. Same story everywhere I know. He says, many of the items your reader commented about in this article are the same here. Very limited Gatorade, gallon water is sketchy at best. Sometimes we get it, sometimes we don't. I've not seen many supply issues in stock, Rather, poor quality issues there. Much more than normal. Deli, bakery, yes, lots of of out-of-stocks and long-term unavailable, as my supplier likes to order it on the invoice. In the center store, dry grocery, like others are saying, tons of of out-of-stocks. Meat supply is fair, but pricing is extremely high, shockingly high to me. The middle class is slowly being destroyed with these prices hikes, death by a thousand cuts of sorts, I guess. He says, my Frito-Lay delivery person tells me he's getting 55 to 60% of what he's ordering. My last Nabisco order had 30% out of stocks. Now, over the years, he says, we always get 99 to 100% of what was ordered. Pepperidge Farm cookies, he tells me some weeks he's only getting half of what he orders. These folks all work on commission. If they don't or they can't sell it to me, they don't get paid or they get paid less. When we place our liquor order twice a week, out of stocks, there are running about uh, there are running about thirty percent now on most orders. Now this commodity was always ninety-nine point five to a hundred percent fill rate over the years, always. And he says it's frustrating. As I said, self-employed, twenty-five years worked for Kroger for twenty-five years before that, so fifty to fifty-one years in this business. Never seen anything close to what's happening now. Add to that a far-left governor in both houses here in Maine, Democrat-controlled. I just know we're on the verge of another mask mandate and a lockdown of sorts wouldn't surprise me again as we move into the colder months. As you've seen, I'm sure Maine is in the news with the COVID cases as the COVID cases surge or so they say. I come to work here every day holding my breath for what's next for our business and the 35 people that I employ here in Maine. So this industry insider is trying to order normal quantities, but his suppliers are often able to to completely fulfill them. And Michael Snyder says, as you can see from the email, the shortages are widespread and this is the worst that they have been during the entire pandemic so far. And so here is his advice. He says, if there's something you need to stock up on, I would grab it if it's still on the shelves because pretty soon it may be completely gone. He says, on Friday, I went to the grocery store, and they were out of several things I wanted to purchase. Unfortunately, we continue to get more confirmations that this is going to become the new normal. So right now, it's not just, you know, certain groceries. You know, there's there's meat that's getting, you know, more costly, more expensive. Dozens and dozens of drugs are in short, short supply. That's interesting. In fact, the official FDA drug shortage list now has 149 entries on it, which he says, that's the most I've ever seen. And even Costco, limiting purchases of toilet paper, paper towels, bottled water. They're not calling it rationing, but that's what it is. We're also told to expect significant price increases because supply chain issues are causing costs to go through the roof. Here's part of the article. It says Costco this week joined the long list of retailers sounding the alarm about escalating shipping prices and the accompanying supply chain issues. The warehouse retailer, which had a similar cautionary tone in May, was joined by athletic wear giant Nike and economic bellwethers FedEx and General Mills in discussing similar concerns. And the cost to ship containers overseas has soared in recent months. Getting a 40-foot container from Shanghai to New York cost about $2,000 a year and a half ago. That's before the COVID pandemic. Now it runs some $16,000, according to Bank of America. Now, Michael Snyder says, I understand a lot of people didn't want to believe me at first. He's been warning about rampant inflation and shortages coming for a long time. But he says, if you were one of those doubters, do, do you believe me now? During the first half of this year, many economic optimists assured us the U.S. economy would be booming by this point. But instead, our economic infrastructure is being shaken on a very basic level. We're facing enormous price hikes and very painful shortages throughout the rest of this year and into next year. So why would you share this with me, Brian? Why would you throw this big wet blanket over the top of the great day that I've been having so far? Because we still have time. Okay, right now you don't see people in panic mode. This is not like, you know, March 15th of 2020 there's still time to take care of the people you care about and to stock up on the things that you need. Consistency is the key, though. So I would encourage you, please, give some serious thought to this. Look at the the things that you have in store and see where you need to bolster yourself. I'm also going to throw in this this shameless plug for one of my sponsors, that being lifesavingfood.com. If food storage is something that has been a priority for you, this is a great time to top off your supply. Go to the link that I provide in my sponsor links at the brianhydeshow.com. It's in the show notes. Click on lifesavingfood.com and save 20%. Listen, you will not get a better deal if you were to go to ReadyWise themselves. That's the type of food storage that lifesavingfood.com sells. You could not get a better deal from going directly to ReadyWise yourself. This is a great discount. This is for my listeners. You have to enter the coupon code HYDE, HYDE, at checkout. I hope it helps. I hope this gives you a little bit of a head start. But let's not turn our backs on this.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.